Chapter 16 of Cross Currents. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. For the first two days of that stay at Montlawn, Maggie was ever on the alert for a paste pot or its equivalent to be set before her. Her keen, swift glancing eyes took prompt inventory of every new thing presented for her inspection, and her sharp little tongue demanded the reason for every act she was requested to perform. Gradually, however, the gentleness, love, and happiness all about her did their good work, and the last vestige of suspicion and distrust fled, leaving her stunted, warped little soul free to unfold like a flower in the sunshine. A strange thing happened then. The child seemed suddenly to come into her own. The old pertness, selfishness, and naughtiness fell from her like a discarded garment, and she became almost at once gentle, sweet, and lovable. Even to the teachers she was a puzzle. Other little girls had shown improvement. And great improvement, too. But there never was one like this, never one who seemed so naturally to take upon herself the gentleness of manner and speech that the teachers tried so hard to impress upon the children from the first. To Maggie herself it was like a dream. She seemed to be living in some half-forgotten world of long ago. She was convinced now that this wondrous pleasure time was a gift, pure and simple, and the thought filled her little heart almost to bursting with love and gratitude. And what wonderful days they were! There was the early awakening in the morning with the song of the birds in one's ears, and the joyous call from some other little bed farther down the line. Later would come the morning song of thanksgiving, and the bountiful breakfast which always tasted so good. Where the long hours of the happy forenoon went to, Maggie never could tell. But the swings, the swimming pool, the seesaw, the walks and frolics and merry games, there was never any time to hang heavily on one's hands. Immediately after breakfast, Maggie always felt she never could be hungry again. But when the noon bell sounded, there were the long tables laden once more, and there was her own stomach clamoring for the good things upon them. Maggie never grew tired of seeing the boys gather in front of the big main building at the sound of the bell and take their places two by two, only to separate into two long lines at one stroke of the bell, while she and the other girls marched down between the lines and into the dining pavilion. Before eating there was always the grace to be sung with its sweet refrain. God is great, and God is good, and frequently there were other songs too. Then came the long bright afternoon with its romps, its games, and with perhaps a story or two, or a new song. Even rain did not dampen the fun, for there was the big playroom over the pavilion, a playroom that made a rainy day an absolute delight. After supper there was a sunset song service in the beautiful temple, with perhaps someone to talk to them, sing to them, or show them stereo-opticon pictures on a great white screen, all of which was very wonderful to Maggie, as well as to Patty, the twins and the rest. Then came bedtime hour, and Maggie used to think sometimes that this was the very best of all. Always there was the dear teacher to sing to them and to tell them of the good Jesus who loved them so well, and always there was the bedtime prayer in the hush of the long quiet room. For Maggie there was something else. Never anywhere was a sweet-faced dream lady so near and dear to her as at this hour, and never did she seem so real. It was a very different little mag of the alley that, when the ten days were over, stood once more in the Grand Central Station on the way back from Montlawn. The thin little cheeks had grown brown and plump, and the shifting, suspicious eyes looked at you with clear, honest joyousness. The tattered, faded dress had been replaced by a pretty blue-and-white gingham, and the eager little dancing feet were in neat shoes and stockings. No wonder the people in the station stopped and looked, for Maggie was but one of many, 
and all alike were tanned and joyous. All the way home Maggie had been thinking, and it was just before they reached the little basement room that she told Patty and the twins her great idea. "'You know them three dollars that we saved to go to Mont Lawn?' she began eagerly. "'Yes,' said Patty. "'Well, you know we never touched it at all, cause couldn't agree what to buy.' "'Hm, yes,' murmured Patty. "'Well, I've got it all fixed,' declared Maggie jubilantly. "'Let's carry it down to the missionary lady to take someone else to Montlon.' "'But she said she wouldn't take it,' objected one of the twins. "'She said they didn't take it from us children. You told us so yourself.' "'Pooh! That was when we wanted to buy our own Montlon,' retorted Maggie airily. "'Don't you see? It'll be just the same as anybody else sending it in, rich folks and all that. Ain't we rich?' We got three whole dollars. Hmm. Yes, acknowledged Patty, and the twins nodded silently. Thus it happened that a certain city missionary the next morning found tied to her doorknob a small brown paper parcel, which upon being untied revealed a dollar bill and a quantity of nickels, dimes, and pennies. On the brown paper itself was scrawled in Patty's best hand the message Maggie had dictated. To take someone else to Mont Lawn. We are rich. So please don't refuse the money. End of chapter 16. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.